Good to see you all here tonight. Tonight we are beginning a study of the book of Malachi. So we're doing two Old Testament books, one in the morning, one at night, John in the morning, Malachi in the evening. You are receiving two handouts. This one-page handout you are receiving is a misnomer. It says outline for Jonah. I had Jonah on my mind. It is outline for Malachi. So, uh, so if you would make the correction, it is the outline for tonight's book. I need to give uh, credit where credit is due. The first two pages of this material comes uh, primarily from uh, the Holman Old Testament commentary by Stephen Miller on the book of Malachi. So uh, this first two pages is not my work. So I, as I said, I need to credit him uh, for what uh, is before us. So we begin by looking at the prophet. The name Malachi appears nowhere else in the scripture and it is seriously doubted by critical scholars whether Malachi is a proper name at all inasmuch as the term in Hebrew means my angel or my messenger. It has been suggested that this is an anonymous prophecy, the term simply designating an office, and verse 1 should be translated the burden of the word of Yahweh to Israel by the hand of my messenger. On the other hand, every other prophetic book of the Bible bears the name of its author. So it would be strange if this one did not. The date. The book was definitely written following the Babylonian captivity. The date is usually fixed at between 458 and 433 B.C. Malachi is the oldest book of the Old Testament, followed by 450 years of silence till John the Baptist. The profile of the book, taken from Holman Old Testament commentaries. Uh, Malachi is the sixth shortest book in the Old Testament, only 55 verses, and the twelfth shortest book in the Bible. Malachi uses the dialectical or question-answer method to convey his message. No less than 27 questions appear in the book in the NIV. Ezra and Nehemiah record the historical background for this prophecy. Malachi was written after the ba Babylonian exile during the time of Persian control of Judah. His ministry best fits the period between Nehemiah's two terms as governor of Judah. Malachi's status as a book of scripture has never been questioned. It is listed as scripture in Jewish writings at least two centuries before the time of Christ and was venerated as scripture by the authors 
of the Dead Sea Scrolls. F. The book is repeatedly alluded to in the New Testament as an inspired prophecy. And then you notice the references. Malachi's theme is stated clearly in the beginning of the book, 1, 2 to 5, namely God's love for the people Israel. At least three messianic references are found in the book of Malachi, 3, 1, 4, 2 to 3, and 5 to 6. The structure of the book. Typically, after introducing a declaration of God, Malachi records the people's rebuttal with the words, but you say. That is a key factor in understanding the book of Malachi. God declares a truth, and then the people argue with it. Uh, they find fault with what God says. And that is the format that we're going to be using in uh, exegeting this, this book. So, examples. A, Malachi 1-2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? B, Malachi 1-6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests, who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? Malachi 1.7. By offering polluted food upon my altar, but you say, how have we polluted you? Malachi 1.13. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi 2.14. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. Malachi 2.17, you have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? Malachi 3.7, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? Malachi 3.13, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? So Malachi is a confrontational book intended to rebuke the children of Israel for their indifference, but they are not ready to assume the responsibility. They do not agree with the assessment. They argue with the prophet about the assertions that he's making on behalf of God. So it's a it's a book about being defensive. It's a book about rationalization. It's a book about denial and an unwillingness to look at themselves in the true light of the which the scripture portrays them. And I think, to some degree, we can all relate to struggling with sometimes how the scripture characterizes our sinfulness or our wickedness, our disobedience, or our mindset, or our natural tendency. And uh, we have a tendency to, to argue with such things. Or doctrines. Uh, we argue about election. Is that fair? Is that right? Is that appropriate? Is that what God would really do? Is that what God has really said? And so it's something that I think we can relate to. So tonight we look at Malachi 1-2. I have loved you, says the Lord. 
But you say, how have you loved us? The answer is, is not Esau, Jacob's brother, described, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob. So the theme, Israel's failure to appreciate God's love for them. God's love and our response to it, verses 1, 1 to 5. That's the first section. I'll read it. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage <coughs> and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So the opening message to the book of Malachi is a declaration of God's love for his people. I have loved you. The past tense speaks not only of God's present love for his people, but God had showed that love upon Israel in the past. Therefore, his love should be self-evident. The Israelites should be acutely aware of God's love for them. That isn't something that should be open for debate or for discussion. The very fact that they failed to see God's love for them is a rebuke of their spiritual condition. They have to be blind to some degree to even question whether or not God loves them. But it is their circumstances, it's the experiences that they are going through that are causing them to question God's love for them. Uh, namely, this is after the Babylonian captivity. They have been set free, but now they have come back to the land, and there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, there is the rebuilding of the temple. There's the rebuilding of the walls. And not only is there a lot of work to be done, but there's a lot of opposition that they are facing by Sanballat and others who are trying to frustrate the work. And even as they rebuild the temple, it's nothing like the original temple, and uh, we got that great passage in the Old Testament that says, despise not the day of small things. Uh, don't look down on this temple just because it's not as beautiful as the first temple. But all of their outward experiences were questioning God's love for them. What have you done for me lately? Okay, And, you know, the temptation for us is to look at our outward circumstances where we might not have all that we want or we might be experiencing opposition or we might be going through a period of illness or we might be struggling financially or we may have just lost our job or our friends may have just turned their back on us or on and on it goes, negative things happen. And in the midst of that negativity, we can begin to question God's love for us. We can begin to, to doubt uh, God's care for us. And this doubting of God's love for the people is foundational to all that is going to take place in the book of Malachi. Uh, it is ground zero for the problems that, Mal that uh, the people of Israel are going to uh, experience spiritually. So, uh, if we question 
God's love for us, it's going to be ruinous to us in many areas of our spiritual well-being. Uh, if we doubt God's love for us, it's, it's going to cast doubt on God's sovereignty, on God's goodness, on God's righteousness, on God's holiness, on God's faithfulness, on God's truthfulness in his word. If, if we doubt his genuine love and concern for us, then just about anything is open for, for question. So this becomes extremely important. B, nevertheless, the thoughtless response of God's people is, how have you loved us? The response is to the effect, you say that you love us, but what you've done for us lately. Uh, show us your love. Point that out, okay? I want to see it. So what does God do? What is his response? Well, God proclaims his love for Israel. God loved Israel by choosing Jacob rather than Esau. I have loved you, says the Lord, but how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved you. And remember, of course, uh, the Israelites come from the 12 sons or tribes of Jacob. There were many ways that God could have cited that demonstrated he loved the Israelites, not the least of which was delivering them from the land of Egypt. All right, there, there were a host of things that God could have pointed to to show his love. Um, as I say, not the least of which is bring them out of the land of Egypt. For example, Deuteronomy 4.37. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them, and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power. So, because he loved you, it was God's love that brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1, a contemporary of Malachi. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to Baals and burning offerings to idols. So God says in Hosea that though he loved them, they in turn did not love him back. And that is the great danger that we all face. We know the word of God teaches us that we love him because he first loved us. That the one who takes the initiative in this love affair is God. And God commended his love toward us and that while we were at sinners, Christ died for us. The danger is that we don't reciprocate. Not only do we not initiate, but sometimes we don't respond to God's love in the way that we should. He doesn't fail to love us, but we fail to love him. So how does God love Israel? Well, his answer is God's lo love for his people is distinguished from his love for others. Number one, God loved Jacob in a way that he did not love Esau. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how you've loved us? Here's the answer. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Okay. Notice the distinction. I have loved you, 
in a way that I have not loved Jacob. God fought for Israel and against her enemies. Isaiah 43, 3. For I'm the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Sheba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. God is saying, I have fought for you. I, people have died as a result of their coming against you. I have been on your side. I have delivered you. I have protected you. I have guarded you in a way in which I did not guard, I did not protect others. It wasn't the Egyptians who came across the sea on dry ground. Rather, their chariots were undone and they died in the midst of the sea. Not you. And you should see the difference. God's love for Israel was unconditional and unmerited. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord, your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So this love is not because that they somehow earned it, deserved it, or merited it, but it was a love that God gave to his people regardless of their conduct. What is extremely important, of course, about this particular verse of scripture is that it's quoted in the book of Romans in that great chapter that teaches us about election. And uh, we pick up in Romans chapter 9, verse 11, where it says, though they were not yet born, it's talking about Jacob and Esau, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, here's this unconditional aspect again, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the, other, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's a quotation of our passage in Malachi. So the love that God is ultimately speaking about for the Israelites is a salvific kind of love. It's one in which they are going to be brought into an eternal relationship with him. Now, number one, much has been written on the subject of God's love for Jacob and God's hatred of Esau. There is a sense in which God loves all humanity, and there is a sense in which God has a special love, a redeeming love for his own. In a comparative way, God's love for all humanity seems to us like a hatred in contrast to the love that he has for the redeemed. So let me say that again in a little different way. The scripture teaches us that God loves all people. At the same time, it teaches us that God loves uh, Jacob and hated Esau. 
So how do we square those two ideas? Well, the answer comes in what do we mean by love? For example, A. Note Luke 12, 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yea, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now think about that. Does the word of God actually call upon us to hate our father and mother? We just did a Mother's Day message in which we were looking at the scripture that told us that we should honor our father and our mother. So how do you square those two ideas? Well, the answer comes that in comparison, our committedness should be to such a degree that when we're talking about our love for God, as opposed to our love for our parents, there's such a chasm between that kind of love that it looks like a hatred for our parents in relationship to the incredible love that we are to have for God. B, love for God is contrasted with love to one's father, mother, or children. The point is not that we are to fail to love our children, but rather that our love for God must surpass the love that we have for our children, such as Abraham, willingness to offer up Isaac. It is profound that the husbands are to love their wives as founded upon Christ's love of the church, Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We know that we are to love all mankind, including our enemies. That does not, however, mitigate the fact that we are to love our own wives in a unique way, distinguishable from our love for others, in keeping with Christ's unique love for his church. Okay, so the Bible teaches us we are to love our neighbor. But the love for our neighbor is different than the love that we are to have for our spouse. Okay, there is a unique commitment that we make to our spouse that is different than the commitment that we have to our neighbor. We need to be able to distinguish that love. And it uses as the example Christ's unique love for the church. He died for the elect. He died for his people. He loved them in a way which he did not love for others, okay? Um, Jesus died for the many. He didn't die for every single human being. Not everyone is going to be saved. His people are going to be saved. God commended his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But you've got to understand the us is us. And the us is not everybody. And it comes out of this passage where the Israelites are looking and say, how have you loved us? And God says, can't you see the uniqueness? Can't you see how you are different? Can't you see how I have blessed you? 
The application is, A, since God has chosen us, we should have no doubt that God loves us. Ephesians 1.3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heaven and places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. God's love for us is primarily seen in this predestining work of bringing us to salvation. And if we don't understand that, we're going to start questioning God's love for us. As we look around and we look at circumstances and we find that some people's circumstances are better than mine. Some people's bank account is larger than mine. Some people's health is better than mine. Some people's house is bigger than mine. And I can look at life and say, God, how have you loved me? He loved me by giving his son for me. And you won't ever understand that until you realize that he didn't give his son for everybody. That his love for me and for you, if you know the Lord is your Savior, is unique. You are a treasured possession. You have a relationship to God that no one else has. That's the foundation for the book of Malachi. You say, how have I loved you? I have loved you by saving you. I haven't saved Esau. B, even when outward circumstances seem to be difficult, we should know and realize that God still loves us. Romans 8.31, of course, you know that Romans 8 uh, is that great passage that centers upon uh, We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew he also did predestinate to conform to the image of his son. And it goes on. Romans 8, 31. What should we then say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, the us is important, How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If he gave us the best, he will give us the rest. If he gave us his son, he will continue to provide for us. He will continue to watch over us. He will continue to protect us. He made the greatest sacrifice that could be made in giving his son for us. Therefore, we know that we're going to abide in his love. Verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Clearly, it's talking about the elect here. Verse 34. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things you are more than conquerors through him who loved us. But notice, tribulation, persecution, famine, nakedness does not mean that God doesn't love us. And none of that can separate God's love for us. Verse 38, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can make God stop loving us. Therefore, we should never stop loving God. We should never, ever question in the middle of my hardship, does God love me? Because Jesus died for me. God saved me. I'm going to be in his presence forever. And there will be a host of people that aren't. And there is no greater love than this, that a man should lay down his life for his friends. See, the greatest way that we've experienced God's love is in his choosing to save us. Greater love has no one this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So Malachi begins with the people of Israel lamenting their state and their condition, asking when God says, I have loved you, how have you loved us? Answer, I chose you. I saved you. And when times get tough, and when things look bleak, and we are tempted to say, does God really love me? Why are all these things happening to me if God loves me? Yeah, God loves me. He saved me. He brought me into an eternal relationship with himself. No one else experiences that. No prosperity, no health, nothing is to be worthy of exchange. Think about it. What would you be willing to give up? What would you trade your salvation for? How large would the bank account have to be? How vital would your life have to be? The scripture puts it this way. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Nothing compares. No earthly circumstance can be delighted in more 
than in God's saving us. That's his love. This one page is a very good argumentative outline of the next few verses. I didn't exegete them, so I'm just passing this out. This is not mine. This comes from the American, New American Commentary on the book of Malachi. And uh, I just give it to you. If you're interested in looking at that, uh, it follows the flow of the argument very well for, through verses 3 to 5. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us. And, O oh Lord, help us. Help us not to be so arrogant or self-centered that we ever doubt or question your love for us. Lord, may we not be envious as the children of Israel were envious of the Edomites. Let us not be envious of the wicked, of the unbelievers, of our neighbors, co-workers, people who have no relationship with you, but in some ways seem better off under earthly circumstances. But give us the perspective, O oh God, that famine or persecution or trials or tribulations, hardships cannot separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Thank you for loving us with an everlasting, eternal love. Thank you, O oh Lord, that, that that love that you have for us is not dependent upon us. You never stop loving us. We don't have to pick daisies and say, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. For your love is not based on our love. You don't love us because we first loved you. We love you because you first loved us. With an everlasting, eternal love that is going to bring us into a relationship with you forever and ever. Thank you for never stop loving us. And oh God, Assure us in our heart and minds tonight, no matter what we are experiencing, no matter what we are facing, that God, we are securing you. You love us. You will watch over us. You will protect us. You will provide for us for all eternity. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. You are dismissed, and there is a meeting. Uh, I... I quit 10 minutes early. I'm assuming you want to have that meeting 10 minutes early? Okay.